Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, guys. Welcome to New Books in Public Policy. This is Sean Hamilton, your host. Our guest today is Daniel Webster, and we're going to be talking about his book, Reducing Gun Violence in America. Uh, Daniel, welcome. Thanks for having me. Great. Thank you. So I guess the first question I have is tell us um, about your background and how you came to write the book. Sure. Um, So my background is in uh, public health and health policy. I have a doctoral degree from Johns Hopkins, but uh, when I was getting my doctoral degree, the, the uh, public health problem that was most acute in, in Baltimore at that time was an epidemic of gun violence. And uh, so for the past roughly 24 years, uh, I devoted uh, most of my career to studying violence and its prevention and focusing um, much of that work on the role of guns. In, in violence, and uh, very specifically uh, focused on studying policies and strategies and programs to reduce gun violence. Got you. Um, can we just briefly just talk through sort of the, the history of, of gun control? Um, I guess the first gun control act was at the 1968 Gun Control Act? Yeah, some of the most significant legislation began in, in uh 1968 with the Gun Control Act, uh, following some high-profile assassinations um, of our leaders, and it, it really sort of was a skeleton of the law in many respects. Uh, it identified and set out um, categories of, of disqualifications for being able to purchase and possess firearms, uh, created a system for uh, licensed gun dealers to keep records of the uh, sales to individuals. Um, and um, that, in many ways, it was quite limited. And, and it could be thought of, in some ways, as an honor system. Uh, someone could go into a gun shop, uh, complete a form, and check a box uh, and sign something to say that uh, you didn't meet any of these uh, disqualifying conditions, and uh, they would uh, pretty much immediately sell you whatever firearm or set of firearms that you were interested in. Uh, it wasn't until the 1994 and the passage of the Brady Law in which those sales um, from licensed dealers were required a, a background check to, in essence, verify uh, rather than go on the honor system. Um while as necessary and important as that milestone was for the Brady Law, uh, of course, many people now well know that there's a there's a real flaw or an important gap in that law in that it really required no such background checks or record-keeping for sales uh, from private sellers, uh, those who uh, aren't federally licensed firearm dealers. Okay. 
So that, those, those, I think, are, are the most important key laws. I mean, we, we've there have been some other measures. Uh, the assault weapons ban uh, that, that was in place for 10 years, beginning 1994. Um, there are other key federal laws that, that really um, weakened the regulations and, and uh, restrictions as it related to gun sales and gun possession. The Firearm Owners Protection Act of 1986 um, reduced the, the severity of the penalties for a number of gun sales violations, uh, did a variety of things that made it far more difficult to um, prosecute anyone for illegal gun sales. Um, and Congress also acted um, roughly eight years ago to um, pass legislation that greatly limited uh, lawsuits against uh, gun sellers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, in beginning in 2003, uh, through some appropriation riders, the so-called TIART amendment sponsored by Representative Todd TIART from Kansas were um, were made into law, and those again gave greater protections to licensed gun sellers and reduced accountability in a number of ways. Right. Now, how did the NRA's role evolve over that same time period? Were they as hostile to the 1968 Gun Control Act as they have been to other gun control legislation? No, back then, uh, they were not as focused on uh, defeating gun control. Uh, they were more seen and, and operated as an organization to support uh, the sporting use of guns, Um and then in the 1980s, there starts to be a, a major shift in that organization to focus more on uh, uh, advocating for, uh, or excuse me, against stronger gun laws. Um, and then as recently as uh, 1999, the organization actually said it supported background checks for all gun sales, uh, a policy that they now emit. So, so the NRA has, um, in, in many ways, become more uh, radicalized and more extreme in its position. And some polling that, that we've done that's in our new book shows uh, the gaping distance, not only between gun owners' uh, support for policies to strengthen gun laws, uh, but, but even... Uh, shows a great distance between what NRA members report that they favor. Uh, so 74% of NRA members said that they supported background checks uh, for all gun sales. Right, right. Now, explain why expanding back, background checks are so important, in your view. Uh, a key to the whole process. Um, the, the primary objective of most gun laws is really to keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people. And there's different pieces to, to accomplishing that. One is we need to set out and identify who's too risky to have a gun, and we need some reasonable way to identify those individuals. Secondly, 
we need some sort of regulatory scheme or, or mechanism to assure that the prohibited individuals don't have guns. Um, and right now, we do not have a complete system. We've, we've, we, in essence, have given uh, criminals and gun traffickers uh, really convenient options. Uh, if if uh, complying with laws, you know, for sales from licensed dealers is, uh, is too inconvenient or risky, we're making it easy for them and saying, well, we'll let private sellers sell to you uh, regardless with no questions asked, no records kept, which is perfect for criminals and gun traffickers. Right, right. And now just ex- explain the secondary market for guns because I think that that's, I don't, I don't know if everyone quite gets exactly how that works. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because I think that's one of the most important things uh, for people to understand. Uh, some of the data that uh, we report in our new book uh, comes from a survey of uh, state prison inmates throughout the United States. And they're asked questions, those who uh, use guns to commit their crimes, they're asked uh, how, they, how they acquired their guns. What we found is that nearly 80% of those uh, criminals uh, obtained their firearms from private transactions, uh, the type of transac- transactions that our federal laws exempt from any record-keeping or uh, background check requirements. What, what's even particularly interesting is if you look at the backgrounds of these individuals, uh, of who was uh, legally prohibited from purchasing a, or, or possessing a gun at the time that they committed their crime. And what you see is uh, even for those who were, were legal to possess guns, they often acquired them through private transactions. And uh, I'm assuming part of the reason for that is that there's no record connected connecting them to a gun, which is, again, uh, a great advantage for a criminal uh, is, is to, again, sort of disconnect themselves with a gun uh, so that they can't be held accountable if, uh, if they do something with that gun or someone else does something with that gun to, to commit a crime. Um, now, some people make the claim that, well, gun owners, or excuse me, criminals, uh, aren't going to comply with these laws, so so why are we bothering? Uh, they're, they're, but they they miss the important point. Uh, the reason that it is too easy that criminals are getting guns too easily is because we have these gaps in in laws that in the laws that they're exploiting. Um, what our research uh, shows that again is reported in in this book is that the states that do require background checks and record-keeping for private sales um, have much um, much uh, fewer guns uh, recovered from criminals uh, shortly after a retail sale, the common type of diversions of guns from the illegal to the illegal markets, mm-hmm. uh, in the underground markets in which criminals... Uh, often get their guns. Mm-hmm. 
So, uh, so there are direct uh, connections between uh, the so-called legal market and illegal market, and what the pattern of research shows that we report in our book is that uh, those with more comprehensive regulations over both private sellers as well as licensed gun dealers uh, in those states, uh, they have far less of a problem of guns being diverted to criminals. And uh, typically the states that have the more comprehensive laws, their, uh, the guns being used in crime in their states come from other states, states with typically far weaker laws where there are no, there's little accountability for either private sellers or licensed gun dealers. Mm-hmm. And, and now, so just, just so we're clear, this, the transactions you described where a person buys a gun from, um, a seller that's not a licensed dealer, that's different from a straw purchase, right? Well, they can be the same thing. So, um, unfortunately, in the survey that was conducted by the U.S. Department of Justice about, uh, you know, to, to uh, find out how criminals were getting guns, that was only one, one thing that they were trying to do with the survey, just to be clear. Mm-hmm. Um, they did not specifically uh, ask questions in a way that it was easy to determine someone who, you know, sort of, it was the classic straw purchase scenario in which uh, someone was accompanied by a felon uh, into the store and they bought the gun for them or that they were specifically instructed uh, to do so, or um, conversely that um, someone simply purchased the gun first and then subsequently decided to uh, sell the gun to the criminal. So, so it's it's a little bit hard to distinguish those two in the survey data that's available. Okay, okay. Now, what's a who's a high risk individual in your view? Yeah, question. So, um, so let's let's first talk about federal law. Federal law identifies uh, several categories of individuals that they prohibit from. Uh, purchasing or possessing firearms. And by and large, uh, those conditions are based in an actual fact, meaning that those subcategories of individuals are indeed uh, at much greater risk for uh, misusing firearms than are uh, otherwise law-abiding adults. So uh, we, we prohibit anyone who's been convicted of a felony from possessing firearms. Again, that's a, a, a very high-risk group. Uh, those who have been convicted of uh, misdemeanors for domestic violence, uh, a lot of support that they are a very high-risk group. Uh, individuals with restraining orders for domestic violence. And, uh, of course, a, a great deal of attention and discussion is all goes around uh, the, the issue of those individuals with mental illnesses that um, increase risk for uh, for violence. And, and that's a small, I, I, I want to underscore that that's sort of a small subset of a much larger population of individuals who have mental illnesses. Most, most individuals with mental illness are, are not at greater risk for, for violence. 
Right. Um, and then the last general category of, of importance uh, is underage youth. Uh, we have a sort of a not completely logical system for uh, age restrictions when it comes to guns. We say that uh, in order to purchase a handgun from uh, a licensed dealer, you have to be 21 years of age. Mm-hmm. But uh, you can be uh, 18 to 20 years old and purchase a handgun from uh, a private individual, a non-licensed seller. <laughs> Uh, you can do that legally. So that, that's not, that, that makes as much sense as, as, uh, our system that says that we're only going to require a background check, uh, if you want to buy a gun from a licensed, uh, gun dealer. Right. Uh, so, so those are the general high risk categories. One of the things that we talk about in our book that again is, uh, not discussed enough in our opinion, is that uh, many states go beyond these federal conditions to expand their uh, prohibiting categories to high-risk groups and with good justification. Mm-hmm. So uh, while federal law focuses on felons and those convicted of domestic violence uh, misdemeanors, research reported in the book uh, conducted by Dr. Garen Wittemute shows that um, Individuals convicted of any type of misdemeanor crime, particularly any misdemeanor crime involving violence, uh, are at extremely high risk for uh, committing subsequently committing uh, violent crime uh, when compared to otherwise uh, law-abiding adults. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the other uh, category that that, some, that sometimes is addressed in state law uh, is substance abusers, those who are uh, illegally used um, uh, drugs mm-hmm. or who are um, alcoholics or, or otherwise use alcohol. Uh, the, the research shows that both of those groups are at greater risk for violence. And uh, interestingly, uh, it's those with alcohol problems at that, that have the great, much greater risk for violence, even more so than uh, illegal drug uh, users. Mm-hmm. So we, we talk about other ways that we could um, expand the prohibition so that you still have uh, allowed law-abiding adults to, um, to purchase and possess firearms, but you uh, really uh, address a broader pool of, of People who engage in criminal acts and who otherwise, uh, because of substance abuse or, or because of uh, youthful age, are at uh, notably higher risk for committing violence. Mm-hmm. And now, the the subcategory you talked about of the the mentally ill or the subgroup of the mentally ill, which what illness would or what which illnesses would stand out to disqualify somebody from owning a firearm? Well, uh, typically research, um, you know, uh, at onset of schizophrenia, sometimes it, there is greater risk with, with that particular illness. But uh, what the research indicates is that, th- that there could be uh, a great deal of, of heterogeneity or differences among people with the same uh, diagnosis. 
and uh, most of the the risk is is sort of a uh, sort of a, 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 the result of a combined set of influences uh, that go beyond the mental illness itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, many individuals with mental illness problems have co-occurring substance abuse problems, and again, it's those problems that are more strongly linked to violence than is the mental illness. Um, so. Typically, the way the laws are structured, they are structured not simply to uh, restrict someone based upon a, a diagnosis, but they're based on some assessment. Now, the, now the assessment could be better, but some sort of assessment that typically has gone through an actual formal uh, judicial procedure that assesses whether this the individual as a result of their mental illness represents uh, uh, imminent threat to others or themselves. Uh, and, and that is his assessment uh, that uh, often is informed by mental health providers' uh, assessments. Okay. okay. Now, what recommendations do you have to make the ATF more effective? I guess first, kind of maybe just remind us exactly what the ATF is and what its role is in Sure. Uh, that's a good and important question. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, the uh, agency that many refer to uh, by ATF, they used to not have explosives be part of their name. Uh, but the ATF, they are charged with enforcing the federal gun laws, um, the whole range of federal gun laws. And... Um, <clears throat> They are greatly under-resourced federal law enforcement agency. They're tasked with some very important uh, responsibilities as it relates to uh, enforcing gun laws and, and even laws relevant to bombs and explosives devices. Uh, <clears throat> but this is an agency that uh, Congress has very intentionally weakened mm-hmm. by uh by the types of laws that they've written make it very difficult to enforce the laws. And at the same time, they have uh, really starved the ATF of resources. So the ATF has uh, about, well, less person power than they did probably uh, two decades ago. Um, And uh, relatively flat budgets for many, many years. So they're asked to do a great deal with uh, very bad laws and very few resources. Uh, The other thing worth noting is that uh, Congress has failed to or or, uh, or basically refused to uh, uh, approve a director for ATF uh, you know, as it goes through the Senate, mm-hmm. and uh, in essence, the gun lobby has been blocking that. The, the, the gun lobby would prefer a very weak ATF than to a strong ATF, which is very ironic because when discussions of gun control come up, uh, many uh, who oppose stronger laws say we simply need to do a better job of enforcing the laws, but. Yeah. Um, the reality is that those same political actors are enacting laws that uh, 
very intentionally have weakened the ATF. Right. right. Now, one of those laws you mentioned is the TR Amendment, right? Right. How does yeah. that How does that weaken the ATF? So, um, there are different uh, aspects of this uh, so-called TR Amendment. Um, it restricts the, the use of gun trace data in a number of different domains. Uh, you can't use those data in uh, licensure uh, decisions and hearings. Um, you can't use those data uh, when gun dealers are being sued. Um, it uh, says that uh, licensed gun dealers do not have to do a physical inventory when they are inspected by ATF. Uh, something that's pretty important for accountability purposes. Right. There, there are gun shops uh, who um, very commonly, when they are audited, uh, will be found to not be able to account for hundreds of guns. Um, and, of course, the great concern is that those guns are either being uh, stolen by employees or, or others, or they're being sold off books. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the TR Amendment uh, sort of makes it harder for the ATF to, um, to do the inspections and, and to uh, hold gun dealers accountable to make sure that they're keeping track of their inventory. Mm-hmm. Um, another aspect of the TR Amendment is that it requires the destruction of the records from the FBI's uh, background checks within 24 hours after um, the, the background check has been conducted. Uh, again, this is rather ironic because the opponents of gun control now uh, have been critical that when someone is denied uh, from being able to purchase a firearm because they are prohibited, and doing so actually is a federal law violation and attempting to buy a gun when you're a prohibited person uh, is, is a federal violation. They have been uh, very critical of ATF of not enforcing those those laws, yet um, in addition to uh, having re- uh, insufficient resources, they even uh, do away with the records that would help them enforce those laws. Right. right. What is trace data? Just just for the listeners. So, um, every firearm uh, sold in the United States is required to have a serial number. And the reason that's important is that it helps uh, in tracing guns and holding uh, individuals for us to identify sort of uh, where the gun was was last sold. Mm-hmm. Uh, police officer will recover a gun from a criminal or a crime scene. They can look at the make and model, uh, look at the serial number, and submit all that information to the ATF. The ATF will, uh, through a series of calls to manufacturers, wholesalers, and retailers, um, get information about when and where that gun was sold and to whom. And that can often be very important information uh, for solving the crime committed with the guns, but it also can be very important information to tell ATF about 
uh, who might be involved in uh, trafficking against. Okay, okay. And so, <clears throat> and so what the TR Amendment does is sort of weaken the ATF's ability to actually get that information? Yes, and, and, and to really use it in the most effective way. Uh-huh. Um, there was an example you guys had in the book, I think, that sort of illustrates that problem. Was it called the it was a, a gun dealer, Badger? Um, Badger. Right, yeah, right. So uh, we talk about sort of a, a very interesting, important case study uh, that sort of highlights one of the problems uh, in federal law and, and sort of how they play out in, in a local environment. So... Um, just outside of the uh, city limits of Milwaukee is a, is a gun shop. Uh, its name has changed a little bit over the time, but it, it's generally known as Badger, Badger Guns, Badger Guns and Ammo. And um, back in the late 1990s, uh, the ATF put out a report or issued some, some information that, that indicated that this gun shop uh, led the nation in the number of guns it was connected to that were used in crime. Uh, so no other gun dealer had sold more guns that were used in crime than, than Badger. When this was announced, within a couple of days, the gun dealers, uh, the, the person who owned the store, announced publicly that uh, they were going to stop selling uh, sort of a category of handguns that were very inexpensive and overrepresented in crime, the type of gun that some might refer to as junk guns or Saturday night specials. Uh, what our research found was that uh, pretty much instantaneously after ATF had released that report about race data and Badger, and, and then Badger changing the sales um, practices, there was a uh, very substantial drop in the number of guns coming from Badger uh, that subsequently went into the hands of criminals. Uh, a huge decline, as much as 76% decline uh, from that voluntary move. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, we, we published some research on this. We shared some of the information with local officials. And uh, when we shared that information, this was way back in 2006, it started raising other questions about, well, what's going on now with Badger? Because uh, there, had been a, there had been a sizable reduction in the guns coming from that store in the Bay of Criminals. So uh, they, were, they obtained more trace data from the ATF, and we analyzed those trace data. And we were able to look at this through um, guns recovered through uh, 2006, uh, approximately uh, a little more than two years after the TR amendments be- became law. Mm-hmm. And what we found was really quite shocking that almost immediately coincident with the TR uh, amendments and, and various protections for gun dealers, uh, there was a 200% increase in uh, the number of guns coming from Badger into the hands of criminals in Milwaukee. And uh, this was a, a, a dramatic change that was not at all evident among most gun dealers, suggesting, again, which what we suspected before, 
which is most gun dealers are generally law-abiding individuals and not necessarily uh, pose any threat to public safety. But mm-hmm. there are a subset of gun dealers that really uh, contribute to a, a massive pipeline of guns to criminals. And right now, the way the federal laws are structured, uh, they they give great protection to those individuals. Mm-hmm. Now, describe your suggestions for, um, I guess, limiting certain assault weapons or large-capacity magazines. Sure. Um, this was the, the gun policy question, I think, that we uh, probably struggled with the most because we had the least information. Um, the, the, the question of assault weapons uh, gets a great deal of attention when uh, in debates about gun control and, and discussions in the media. Uh, I, I should underscore that uh, assault weapons re- represent a relatively small proportion of all guns uh, used in crime. Mm-hmm. And um, but what's most relevant for assault weapons uh, really is ammunition capacity. Mm-hmm. And there does there is a, a, a positive correlation uh, between ammunition capacity in mass shootings and uh, how many people are ultimately shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, the more bullets the shooter has, the more people will get shot, and I don't know why that should be surprising to anyone. So, um, we're, as I mentioned before, there was a federal ban on assault weapons and large capacity magazines uh, implemented in 1994. Uh, in a chapter in our book uh, written by Chris Cooper, who led the research in this area, he found um, that uh, there were a number of weaknesses in the laws that the industry and others exploited. Mm-hmm. Uh made it easy to uh, have copycat, in essence, copycat types of weapons. Uh, they grandfathered in uh, both the weapons and the large capacity magazines that they were banning mm-hmm. so that... Uh, there were a good number of these weapons that flooded the market just prior to the ban going, going into effect. Right. So there are a number of things that, that weakened the potential of this law to have the kind of impact that was hoped for. Um, and as a result, uh, when Dr. Coper did the research, he did not find a measurable impact uh, very broadly on, on outcomes like homicide. Mm-hmm. But that, again, probably shouldn't surprise us because they represent a relatively small fraction of all homicides anyway, in which assault weapons uh, and, and their capacity are relevant. It's really only that subset. So uh, the group of experts that came together for our summer and to write the book, uh, the consensus was that uh, it would be safer, there would be fewer casualties from mass shootings, if we restricted um, assault weapons and large capacity ammunition device feeding devices. Now, um, what's the CDC's role in reducing gun violence, in in your judgment? Well, uh, years ago, roughly uh, 15, 20 years ago, uh, the Centers for Disease Control was uh, more involved, not they were never dramatically involved in, in uh, gun violence research and, and 
um, reduction efforts. Mm-hmm. But there had been some program of research uh, and work on that topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, when some of the research came out and the gun lobby didn't uh, really like the findings of the research so much, the, uh, the, uh, their supporters in Congress uh, threatened to cut the budget and did cut the budget of the CDC by the same amount that they were spending on gun-related research. As a result, the Centers for Disease Control stopped funding any type of research that focused on the role of guns and violence, Um, and and that's been the case ever since. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, the CDC does uh, support other work that, that I've actually been, I've gotten grant money indirectly or, well, through CDC's uh, grants to centers that work on the problem of youth violence, and I've been evaluating uh, community-based strategies to reduce gun violence. Um, But the the reason that that type of work, in essence, is safer for CDC is that those community efforts have not focused on regulating guns in any way. Uh, it really is focused on trying to uh, mediate disputes so that they don't lead to gun violence, change social norms uh, of high-risk youth, as opposed to uh, making reforms on gun laws. Mm-hmm. Um, what's a personalized gun? Yeah, good question. So uh, a personalized gun is uh, one that will only fire for an authorized user. And there's a broad range of technologies that might make this possible. Some are very low tech uh, and available right now at low cost. Something as simple as uh, a three-digit combination lock that's on a gun that you would have to Put in that combination digit in order for the firearm to uh, to operate. Um, but now uh, there's far more sophisticated technologies that are being uh, applied uh, to the same end, uh, where they would, for example, recognize a palm print uh, and and only fire for someone with a given grip and palm print. Uh, other technology that, uh, in essence, activates the firearm only when it's in very close proximity to something that the authorized user has on him or herself, like a ring or a bracelet or something like that. Um, so there's, there's new technologies that have been developed and applied to this, and there's so many aspects of our lives now where uh, we are... We are personalizing a number of products, in essence, uh, because we don't want people to have uh, unauthorized access to a variety of, of things that we own. Um, and, and again, the, the idea is that, um, generally speaking, it's safer for only the person who uh, is the legal and authorized uh, owner of a firearm to be able to, to own it. You don't want your, uh, you know, your teenage son to get a hold of it uh, or a burglar or something like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now is there a way to to make, um, 
a uh, a gun that was not personalized personalized? Yeah, they're actually also developing technologies to, in essence, retrofit current firearms with these kind of personalized uh, technologies. Mm-hmm. So it's it's worth stating that. Um, you know, much of the gun policy discussion uh, recently, of course, has been spawned uh, by the horrific tragedy at Sandy Hook Elementary School in, in Newtown, Connecticut. And many, uh, many opponents of stricter gun laws uh, will say, oh, this was not relevant to this uh, Sandy Hook tragedy. But in the case of personalized guns, I think that's a harder case for them to make because if uh, the guns that Nancy Lanza kept in her home were personalized so that they could only be fired by her. Of course, her um, somewhat dis- disturbed, well, cl- clearly disturbed son uh, could not have gained access to those guns and used them uh, had they been personalized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. What about gun buybacks? What's your research showing you on those? Um, that's a topic that we don't cover in our book. There's mm-hmm. actually very little research on that topic mm-hmm. that tells us much. The little research that has been done um, really suggests uh, uh, no significant effects from those buybacks. Yeah. Um, you know, they're they're done in a way, though, that uh, one could probably not reasonably expect to get immediate measurable impacts from that. Um, It could be reducing risk for domestic violence in the home, uh, suicide, and other kinds of things. Uh, But those kind of risks would be uh, something that would be reduced over a much longer period of time than is typically studied. Gotcha. What did you learn from from research on gun control in places like Brazil, Australia, and the UK? Sure. So uh, we wanted um, the focus of the book, as the title indicates, is reducing gun violence in America, and we uh, we look at a lot of state laws and what we can learn from them about what works to reduce gun violence. But we recognize that the most effective laws. Uh, to address the problem really would have to be national or federal types of laws. And therefore, we thought it was important to uh, look to other countries that have taken, uh, often as a result of tragedies like mass shootings, enacted uh, comprehensive types of regulations. And so we invited individuals uh, from the U.K., for example, they they had a, a tragedy that was um, eerily similar to the New, Newtown tragedy when uh, in Dumblain, Scotland, where uh, a disturbed individual went into an elementary school and massacred uh, a, a number of elementary school students, and as a result, uh, they enacted uh, sweeping gun control laws and have had lower levels of violence since then. Uh, Similarly, a a mass shooting in Australia prompted uh, sweeping reforms and restrictions uh, in Australia. Uh, 
there again, uh, since those reforms have been put into place, they have not had a single mass shooting. And they've also uh, seen uh, reductions in homicides and suicides uh, accelerate, so greater reductions for homicides and suicides. And then, then Brazil is actually a very interesting, also an, another example, because um, it, it has much higher levels of gun violence than, than we do in the United States and many other places. It's a much poorer country, but it's a type of place where, you know, sort of the skepticism about that you could do something about the problem was similar to what I experienced here in the United States. We, we experienced here. Uh, people feel like, oh, there are too many guns out there. Criminals are always going to get guns. Well, can't really do anything about that. And that was sort of the, the feeling in Brazil for many years. But they finally uh, took some uh, fairly uh, broad measures not to not to ban guns, to do, but to greatly regulate them um, and, and and require much more accountability in their system so that they could do a better job of keeping guns from high-risk individuals. And as a result, as is reported in the book, uh, they also saw significant reduction in the homicides and violence. Okay. Okay. Um, what about 3D guns? I, I saw some special on that on YouTube. Is that a real thing? Have you seen those at all? Well, that, that's a very new phenomenon, and, and um, there's a lot of talk about that, a lot of concern. I, I have some concern about it, but it, it's so new, I don't think that we know what to think yet about it. But it, it, it is a concern because our current system, or any such system, really for, that would try to regulate and, and hold accountable uh, individuals so that guns don't get into the wrong hands, rest upon a, a system that I referred to before with tracing and serial numbers and accountability regulations and that kind of thing. And if we would just uh, allow any individual to produce his or her own guns that they would use for themselves or to sell to others, there'd be no real way to hold anyone accountable. Um, so this clearly represents... Uh, a, a concern and a potential threat. Right. right. Yeah. Um, I guess last question. What, what What are your suggestions just for average citizens at the grassroots level to curb gun violence? Uh, right. So um, what's, what's very striking, and, and we report this in some polling data in the final chapter of our book, that, well, the chapter right before our recommendations, that um, there is very strong support among Americans across the board, bipartisan support, for uh, strengthening a number of our gun laws, and um, particularly those gun laws that are focused on keeping guns out of the hands of dangerous people. And there's a huge disconnect now between what the American people want and what the laws actually look like and the fact that they are largely been controlled and written by uh, the gun lobby that represents a very small proportion of the overall population that doesn't even reflect the, the values and views of gun owners in America. So 
I think it's very important. And, and one reason that, that they've been able to do that is uh, the people who oppose gun control are so devoted to their cause that they will, they're single issue voters, they will spend money, they will let politicians uh, know they mean business. And the people who want stronger laws uh, generally have not made it their priority. They have not uh, cast their vote based upon how their representatives are voting on that issue. And so I would recommend that individuals uh, vote their conscience and their beliefs about guns, uh, try to be informed as, as best they can. Uh, hopefully our book will help them become informed. And I guess I would particularly uh, encourage gun owners to speak out and to be heard because there are a number of politicians who say that they are casting their vote in support of gun owners, but their votes don't at all line up with what our data and all, many other surveys show that gun owners want stronger laws to keep guns from dangerous people. So uh, rather than let the, a very vocal small minority dictate public policy on an area so important to our public safety, I think citizens should become engaged and, and let their elected officials know and candidates know that reducing gun violence is a priority for them. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us, okay? I appreciate it. And the book is great. Uh, once again, the book is called Reducing Gun Violence in America, Informing Policy with Evidence and Analysis. Um, you've been listening to New Books and Public Policy. Um, this is Sean Hamilton. Our guest has been Daniel Webster. Daniel, thanks a lot for joining us again, okay? Thank you.